What's going on, everyone? This is the George Gleefe, and it's episode 18 of Let's Grab Coffee. I'm joined today by none other than Connor Beaton. Uh, so we actually met for the first time. I, I saw him speak on stage at the Haste and Hustle event, Generation Now conference, which you saw the episode uh, just before this one, actually, with Shauna Arnett, who put this together. Phenomenal speaker, awesome story, an even better dude. So super excited to have Connor on. He's, on, he's the founder of Mad Talks, as well as the founder of Real Talk Summit. So really excited to hear about not just these two ventures that he has, but his personal story. He's done a lot of traveling in the past and has some some really, really crazy stories uh, to share with us today. So, Connor, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, so so tell us a bit about yourself. You know, what, what's, what's, what's the background of your story? Who's Connor being? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, first and foremost, I feel like I sh- I should have my coffee with me right now, um, but I'm like I'm like caffeinated out. I had enough coffee for today, so I'm, I'm probably I'm probably good. Let's grab tea, depending on the time, maybe water. Yeah, I got my I got my mason jar with water. Um, yeah, uh, so you know a little bit about my journey. I think maybe I'll just give you like the overarching uh, overarching piece. Grew up in Central Canada, was a hockey player. Struggled in school, graduated like most kids who are 18, had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, did a whole bunch of random, random jobs to try and figure out what direction I wanted to take my life in, Uh, ended up stumbling across uh, music, started singing, um, you know, found that I really had a a passion for it and a bit of a gift for it, Um, pursued that, got a degree in music, having, you know, no musical background whatsoever, like never played the piano, didn't know the notes on the piano or anything, but went and got a degree in music, uh, worked construction to pay for my degree. And uh, when I got out of that, traveled around the world singing, I got to see some really cool places. Uh, Fast forward, uh, you know, my life sort of fell apart and I found myself at this intersection where uh, I really had to decide whether or not I wanted to pursue this as a career and realized that while I was passionate about it, it wasn't my purpose in life. And it was hard. It was a hard pill to swallow because by that time, I had very much made music and opera and classical singing my my identity. It really was a, like who I was. Oh. And so I was the classic person that when I introduced myself, uh, I was very much like, hi, I'm Connor Beaton, the opera singer, you know? And so... When I let that go, I spent I spent, I spent two years um, digging into human psychology and, and cognitive psychology and understanding the human psyche. And so I, you know, became very well versed in Carl Jung and cognitive behavioral therapy and positive psychology, and and really just wanted to ask the question and wanted to try and find my own answer to the question of why am I here? Like, why do I actually even exist? And what is my purpose? And what's my function? And it, it became something that was so fascinating to me. And, and out of that space, I realized that I wanted to do two things. I wanted to start my own, my own business, something that was going to support men in, in finding a, a sense of purpose, helping them uh, find a sense of, of, of performance and, and uh, bettering themselves, and also helping them in their relationships, which had been a huge challenge of mine uh, previously. And so that was the one thing that I wanted to do. And, and secondly, I wanted to learn about business from the best in business because I had really no idea about business whatsoever. And, uh, you know, I, I had a degree in music. So starting a business seemed like uh, seemed like a bit of a naive idea with zero business acumen. And so I went and got a job at Apple because I saw them as really the industry leaders in so many ways. 
and very quickly was fortunate enough to move up the ranks. And within my you know tenure there, um, I was able to I was able to do some great things, work with some amazing people. Uh, by the time I was done, I was uh, a market manager helping to run and manage and, and lead the the Vancouver market. And um, working alongside people that had gone to Harvard and Stanford and Yale and um, and just men and women who really understood leadership and team dynamics and cultural development within organizations, and organizational behavior. And uh, and so I was I was fortunate enough to sort of get a, a crash course in business in a lot of ways by by being a part of that organization. Um, by the end of it, Mantox had had started take off. We got a lot of media attention and and the community had really started to grow. And so I, I stepped out, I transitioned out after about a year and a half of, of managing both of them and and uh, pushing myself mentally, physically and emotionally to the limits, you know, working 100 hour weeks, um, juggling, you know, juggling this this side hustle and and my my primary uh, breadwinning sort of uh, uh, job. And 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 then entered into this whole new space of being an entrepreneur and having to run my own business and employing people and uh, and and needing to sort of figure that out in a very cumbersome uh, green way. And so you know, I started Mantox off in, in a year and a half before that, but it, it had already grown to be become something that that people knew about and people recognized, and it had it had already sort of grown as a brand and a name uh, in Vancouver. And so we ended up launching the events in different cities around North America, over a dozen cities around North America. We started growing chapters uh, in some of the cities, men's groups that we were popping up, mastermind groups that were popping up. And I started to facilitate uh, more you know, personal growth, personal development work with a lot of these guys and, um, and you know, working on their relationships to, to self and to others. And uh, because I didn't have enough on my plate, I decided to take on another side hustle. Mm-hmm. And I built, I built a separate brand called the Real Talk Summit. And I built that because I saw that there was this need in the market. You know, I saw that businesses were really the ones creating change within our society. And so I wanted to build something that supported specifically business owners and entrepreneurs because I was having all these men come and work with me that were running businesses. And they were tapped out, you know, like they were struggling and they, they oftentimes felt like they didn't have people to actually go and connect with and talk to. And so I wanted to have the real conversations behind business, you know, the real conversations behind entrepreneurship and, but in a very, you know, big, big way in a conference way. And so I had this sort of uh, vision to put on this, you know, 1500 to 2000 person conference and bring out some of the best thought leaders and speakers and CEOs in the world and and have a conference that was about moving business and humanity forward together because in a time where government is extremely slow to create change in our culture and religion is starting to take a little bit more of a back seat especially in western culture and in a lot of ways businesses are the ones that are rapidly changing our society and there's a huge responsibility that they then have whether you are a small mom pa coffee shop all the way up to a fortune 500 brand and how we build our businesses is now quickly becoming and has has been for the last you know millennia how we are building our culture how we're building our societies so i hired gary vaynerchuk uh got him to come in and speak i got daniela port uh, out to come and speak and then we got some really great canadian business owners uh brian scudamore from 1-800 got junk which is 
just a huge success story in the entrepreneurial space. Yeah. Um, the co-founders of Sage, uh, Sage Wellness, which is you know also now becoming a huge success. And uh, so yeah, so that that took off last year, and since then, uh, you know, I've I've really been working one on one with some with the very select few people uh, in small groups. I love doing like workshops and and events, and uh, and and then running running the businesses on on outside of that. Or I guess that would be the main part, and then working with people one on one is is my like now side hustle. Right. That's yeah. Awesome. So it, it does seem to me, and, and thank you for sharing that. Obviously, it's a very diverse background with, with a lot of different, you know, pieces to it. What's interesting about you is, you know, as you already pointed out, you don't come from that traditional business background, academically speaking. Practicality, you've always had it. You you always had a desire to be an entrepreneur, and even as a musician. I mean, a lot of people don't don't see this, but you're an artist, but also an entrepreneur because there's mm-hmm. the business of music too, and then you are the business, right? And so, um, as you did that, though, did you find a couple of questions there because obviously there's a lot of things I want to draw on. But the first one is, did you find it difficult going from non-business to business and succeeding as an entrepreneur? Did you find any, like what hurdles, challenges did you face? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a, a, a big jump over. I think some of the things that I was fortunate enough to have learned in in my music education are was exactly what you're, what you're saying. So in many ways as a musician, you are the product. You're the brand, you're the product, you're the service, all packaged into one. And that had been like beaten into me. Like I'd been like drilled into me in university. It's just like, if you show up and you don't know your music, guess what? There are literally a thousand products, people behind you waiting to take your position. And it, and it created this sort of fire in me that I showed up in a very different way every single day when I went to work because there was this competitive nature that was naturally instilled in me because of that. But it wasn't a competitive nature with the people that I worked with. It really was this competitive nature with myself. There was this sort of self-authorship and self-leadership that I had learned in, in music school that trans- when I transitioned over into the business world was so powerful because what I started to see was that there were so many people who didn't possess that quality of self-leadership. And when you don't possess that quality of self-leadership, uh, it's very easy to fall into, uh, it's very easy to fall into, into the mix, you know, and like your voice isn't, it just doesn't get heard as well. Mm-hmm. And, and people are less likely to want to learn from you, to not want to follow you, but, but definitely to want to learn from you. So that was one of the pieces that definitely helped and supported um, I think one of the major challenges that I faced was, you know, I I didn't have a marketing background. Yeah, you know, I'd never taken marketing classes. I'd never taken financial classes. Um, I freaking hate spreadsheets. Like I just hate spreadsheets. I hate them. I have I have a like I wanna I wanna buy the domain I hate spreadsheets.com. I, I like and just and just have like a big middle finger pointing at spreadsheets. I just can't stand them. And I'm sure that some people out there absolutely love them. And I love people like that because we work well together. <laughs> um, so that that was one of the big challenges. I had a very like creative approach to most things. Right. I also had a a, a a really solid ability to take um, 
ideas and concepts and communicate them out to people because that's what I had been trained in, right? How do you take a message, a vision that, that the company has and then actually bring that out to people? Right. And, and in a lot of ways, that's what leadership is. It's the ability to present an idea to a collective and enroll them in being a part of it in some way, shape or form and getting them you know, enthusiastic about that process or that service or that product in such a way that, that they want to get behind it, that they want to represent it. And so because of those communication skills and that work ethic, I was able to bring something to the table that not a lot of people possessed within, you know, within my market. And I was able to really learn and observe the critical thinking and the analysis that other people would bring to the table that they had been um, acutely trained in and really start to uh, start to cultivate those those resources within myself to start to look at problems differently, not from just a creative approach, but from a critical approach and from a critical analysis approach, and to start to learn which uh, mode of operation, which mode of, of thinking and processing was actually going to serve me in that moment, because some of the best leaders in the world understand that duality. Mm. They really understand the duality between the, the creative communicative process and the critical analysis process and being able to break something down and in, into it's sort of what, you know, what Elon Musk talks about all the time as first principles. And so that was, uh, that was sort of the battle, right? And it, the cool thing about it was that it really started to shine a light on these parts of myself that I had honed and developed over the course of however many years and, and still at the same time showed me what I actually needed to work on uh, within, within that environment. Yeah, because what's interesting too, man, and it's important that you that you ended up figuring that that piece out. Because as you pointed out, I mean, you know, in a team, if you had five people together and all five were super linear and they come from the same exact background and, and they adopt the same ideologies, you're not going to have, you know, a very good discussion. You're not going to have good conversations. Not a lot of good ideas thrown back and forth. But the, the reason why I asked and I wanted you to talk, talk about that is because I also know a lot of people who might not be in the music industry, but might have maybe an arts background, a psych background, a history background, you know, an English major. And so, but because it's not the mainstream sort of subjects that people should study, you know, a society sort of pressures on, on, on our peers, like medicine, like engineering, like law, you end up feeling discredited, you know, as if though you're not valid enough to, to part, you know, maybe partake in, in certain companies or, or to, ha to have these certain positions. But in fact, you actually bring more to the table because you complement teams more, you know? So, so there are more synergies in that way. It's interesting for you to say that. You then mm -hmm. said well, you have an interest in, in psychology. Uh, I have to touch up on that. I, I'm personally, like, I, I just really enjoy it. And recently been watching a lot of Jordan Peterson's work, who um, I think you, you've probably come across. He's a big fan of Carl Jung, who mm -hmm. was influenced by Simon Freud, uh, sorry, Sigmund Freud. Uh, but a lot of his works are also about psychotherapy and, and, and the psychology of, of happiness and, and motivation. Uh, so, so what drew you, what, what drew you to psychology in, in that sense? What drew me to psychology was really a thirst of self-understanding right. and, and a desire to understand my own internal processes and to understand my mind and to understand my own sense of consciousness in a very intimate way. And, yeah. you know, I think in, in many ways, I think in, in many ways, it's something that a lot of people have always questioned. 
And so many people are afraid to go down the path of self-questioning and, and self-discovery because it is not uh, for the faint of heart. You know, you have to face what Carl Jung called your shadow. And yeah. your, your shadow parts are the parts of you that you often reject or avoid. And, and it's, it's the, it's the in, in men especially, it's the dangerous parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the parts of ourselves that are self-deprecating. It's the parts of ourselves that are, that are self-sabotaging. And to meet those parts of ourselves is, is for some people, terrifying. And, and ultimately, um, anxiety-producing, you know, because it, 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 it's, it's confronting to meet these parts of ourselves that our subconscious or our unconscious or, you know, our unconscious psyche has repressed intentionally. But that's where the real gold is, right? That's where, as Jordan Peterson says, when you when you enter into the cave and face the dragon, the gold is on the other side of that, right? We see this littered throughout mythology, um, and and really, in a, in a lot of ways, this this is what the human experience is, is ultimately about: is is to face not just the parts of ourselves that we want to embrace, that we are willing to embrace but to turn towards the parts of ourselves that we are the most fearful of. And that's where a sense of wholeness and completion actually resides. And so many people are seeking that. You know, so many people that are probably listening to this in some way, shape or form feel a void in a part of their life. Mm-hmm. And, and that void is a, is a manifestation in a lot of ways of our shadow parts. And it's not to say that you can find in some form of enlightenment as this, you know, spiritual mystics say, or, or a sense of completion as, you know, the very uh, sort of personal development gurus would say, but, but to go on this path of self-discovery, I think is a worthy cause for me in my life. It really was. It was like, if I was to do something with my life, it was to go on a journey of self-discovery so that I could better understand who I was, why I'm here. And, and hopefully in some way, shape, or form, be able to identify that, disseminate that into a process and help other people then meet themselves in that space. Mm-hmm. Because suffering comes from the disavowment of the parts of ourselves that we want to reject, right? right. How, do you, how do you reject an emotional part of yourself? Of Where does it go, right? It doesn't have anywhere to go. So sure. suffering, res- suffering resides in, in, the, in the rejection of that. And so we have to ultimately embrace these parts of ourselves that we don't want to face. And so uh, I figured that if I ultimately wanted to help people um, heal, if I wanted to help people in any sort of way, that that journey was a journey that I needed to undertake myself, first and foremost. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because Gary Vee, in fact, uh, humorously says, if I had one ability, you know, to to actually do something and and do it for the entire world, is to give them a pill that contained EQ. And if you... So you would really come to understand yourself, but you'd also be comfortable with who you are. So you talk about, you know, mindfulness, reflection, being conscious of who you, of who you are, knowing your shadow, as Carl Jung stated. And I was in funny, funny fact, but I was actually reading about this in the morning, too. So funny you brought that up, but but not suppressing it and, and being like understanding your shadow. And, and because if you understand it, you can actually leverage it for more good than 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 bad in, in a very simple way. How did you what, what, what was the process for you? Like you knew. Right, and you wanted to do this sort of self-discovery process. What did you do? Was it the travel? Like, what? What was your? What was your thing? I mean, there was there was many, many, many different parts. You know, um, 
parts of it was the the travel and experiencing different culture. Um, I, I just want to preface what I'm about to say with you know so many, I think too many people in in our modern culture um, put put solutions and uh, overemphasize singular oh. solutions, right? So they'll say like, oh, I just wish I could get away. Like I just wish I could get away from this. So they quit their job, they sell all their shit. And they buy a you know a one way ticket to Thailand in the hopes that that's going to be the answer to their problem. But that's just one answer to one of their problems. Right. And there's a whole you know gamut of other issues that need to be addressed. So um, so understanding that there's just different pieces. So so traveling was a part of it. Um, you know I got to see a huge amount of of Europe. I got to see China, um, you know North America in depth. That was a part of it. Um, a lot of self-reading and self-learning, a lot of journaling, a lot of meditation, a lot of um, contemplative, uh, just like contemplating um, my own experience and trying to to sort of dig into my experience deeper deeper than the thoughts, right? Like get through the thoughts and into the actual experience of things. Um, you know, working with mentors and coaches, working with psychologists to understand some of these concepts. Um, training myself, reading literally everything that Carl Jung had ever wrote, um, just diving into some of his practices, right? Like if you really want to understand uh, what what he's talking about or what anybody's talking about, it's okay. You know, like, of course, you can read about it, but to implement some of the things, like he wrote a book called Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. And it's a great book because in it, he he sort of involuntarily puts out uh, his own processes of analyzing and breaking down his dream sequences and the archetypes within his dreams. And so I went through that process of, you know, every day for months, just like breaking down and deconstructing my dreams and kind of seeing what's in there. Right. It's like that red velvet book. Is that, is that the one? Uh, it's got a, it's got a couple different versions. I think there is a red velvet book. And then the other one is like a beige one. I think it's got red lettering on it. So it's, it's probably much, much through the same. Um, you know, I, I did other things oh, like I, that, that was a very influential book. Cause that was going to be one of my questions is what, out of all those books that you read, what, which one would you say is the most influential? It would be that one. Ooh, I would say <laughs> there's, there's two books that actually aren't by Carl Jung that, that I found to be, uh, incredibly powerful. Okay. And in, and in some ways they are, they're very different. So um one is one's by alan watts and it's oh. called the the wisdom of insecurities yeah. and that oh. book is yeah incredibly influential. and the other book is a is a book by sam harris called waking up uh, i think it's it's waking up a practical guide to spirituality and it, between the two of those books you know alan watts talks about how your insecurities are trying to teach you things yeah. and and sam uh sam harris sort of unpacks um, from a very scientific, linear, analytical point of view, what consciousness and spirituality spirituality actually is without mm -hmm. the without the the sort of weight of any sort of dogmatic uh, religion. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really those two books are probably some of the most influential books. Uh, I think I've read both of them dozens of times, along along with a book called Awareness by a guy. Uh, whose name is totally escaping me right now, but it'll come back. <laughs> Awareness, nice. And so I, I listen to actually a lot of Alan Watts' stuff on, on YouTube, 
Like if mm-hmm. you just put Alan Watts chill mix, it's 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 really good to also if you want sort of multitasking, you can. Uh, his his I mean his his lectures uh, are, are are very very sort of mind packing, but also his voice is kind of soothing in, in that sense. And, and just a wonderful guy. Unfortunately, very abusive on the on the drug side, and was always on hallucinogenics and DMT and stuff. But uh, very interesting man. I, I I didn't know that that we we have a lot of similarities in that sense. But it's it's interesting that that you. So you went on this on this journey, and I like one point you made, which is a lot of people not only do they want to find like a process, like you know it, whether it's like if I want to lose lose weight, what's the three step guide to getting like a six pack abs, or what's what's the diet for for summer body? You know, it's all these like quick fixes that when you accomplish something minor, you know, leave you very uh, feeling permanently empty still. You know, despite maybe accomplishing a small goal, you, you still feel like you look at yourself and you're like, well. Like I did this, right? I did what you told me to do, and why? Why am I not feeling better? I may look better in the mirror, you know, but I'm still I still feel kind of the same the same way. Do you, do you feel that that's still very very present? You, you mean you, you may mention to the fact there isn't as much religion, especially in the West, and and businesses mm-hmm. not have an onus to be ethical. Are you seeing that a lot now as an entrepreneur yourself? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is that as human beings, we seek uh, very binary answers to problems. And so the, you know, a, a, a big challenge with like the self-help or personal development industry is that in a lot of ways, it's predicated on the idea that there is some simple answer to the problem that people are experiencing. Right. And, and so we seek out these, <laughs> we often seek out these, these very straightforward structured answers to our internal problems. And and you know, I think what I would just say is like, beware the person that's selling you an answer. Seek the people that are that are willing to show you a path, because mm-hmm. a path is a very different way of walking through life than assuming that you've got some form of answer. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's the biggest challenge is that so many people are just, you know, they're they're looking for a quick fix. You know, they're looking to. It's like, oh, my marriage is struggling. I'll just have I'll have one session with the marriage marriage counselor. My my fiance is a, a marriage and family therapist, and so we like she reads me these emails sometimes where it's like you know infidelity has happened, right? And it's like oh we just need a session to get back on track. It's just like you you've been married for a decade, and all of a sudden your partner's cheated on you, and you think that in a forty five minute session you're going to be able to find the solution to this problem that has been going on behind your back for a year and a half. Like mm. what? <laughs> but yeah. it's the way that we're programmed, right? We, we really, uh, we really want something that's, that's quick, tangible and can just be implemented easily. Yeah. And, and you, you point out the, the fact that like questions, not answers, right? Paulo Coelho, uh, obviously a very well-known author, but his book, the alchemist in an interview, he was saying, because a lot of people, I think a lot of people love the book. Obviously it was one of the mo- most selling books, most translated, all that good stuff. But, um, you know, some critics were like, well, you gave a very generic path, you know, it's, and it was, <laughs> you know, some of those cynics were like, well, I, I left the, the book feeling like pretty much more lost than when I started. And he was like, that's the whole purpose. That means I accomplished what I was intending because if I give you answers, they're answers that work for me. And I mean, they're, they're fitting for my story. My purpose was to tell you the journey that someone can take as, as, a, as, a, as a hypothetical example. And when one takes them, the questions that someone would, would come up against and having to face those questions and then finding answers yourself that, that fit your story and your life on your terms. 
you know, yeah. it's not very interesting to me that, that you point that out, man. And I think that's just more, more difficult. And here's another thing that we can talk about is patience. I mean, you're, you're talking about quick fix versus long game in entrepreneurship. People talk about this all the time, especially being young, you know, like obviously people ha hack on millennials, you know, and they, they say like, we, you know, they have a feeling of entitlement and they want everything tomorrow and, and today. And, uh, but patience is such a big virtue today. So for you, you know, having to go through all those steps to where you are today and, and founding your two ventures, how did you deal with patience versus being ambitious versus balancing life versus finding yourself along the way? Like there's so much to that, you know? Mm -hmm. So how did you deal with all of that? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a huge ebb and flow and it's something that I still bump up against. You know, I'm a very um, action oriented sort of type A person. I like achieving, I like winning, I like going after goals. And so surrendering and being patient is often, not, you know, that's, that's the struggle is real, man. You know, the story, the struggle is real. And so I, you know, I counter, I counterbalance that with things like meditation and, and, and mindfulness and any breathing exercises you do. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have very specific breathing exercises. So I start every single day um, with Wim Hof breathing with like the Wim Hof method, which is like, you know, 30 or 40 deep breaths in and exhales out. And then on the, on the last exhale, you exhale all the air out and you hold your breath as long as you can. And right. it starts to um, trigger your autonomic nervous system and, and helps you find a, a deeper sense of calm and peace. And I actually find that my meditative practice after that, that those breathing exercises much deeper. Um, I also do a good amount of like, um, a, a, prana, a form of pranayama breathing, which, mm -hmm. you know, you, you breathe through the nostrils. Uh, yeah, that's, that's one of them, but I do a breathing through both nostrils, but it's down the, you breathe in through the front of the body, right. very down to the very bottom and then up the spine and out. And so it's this cycle that makes you very present in your body. It's especially good for men. Um, but it's, it's you, right? uh, as, as you do this, you have to really visualize. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I have a very active mind and I always have. And, uh, and so those, those breathing exercises really help ground me back into the present moment. And, you know, if I'm feeling hectic or overwhelmed, or if, you know, I've, I've had like five back-to-back -back interviews in between each one, I'll just take 60 seconds, pause, do my breathing, reground and, and be able to show up more, more present for each, uh, each thing that I'm having to tackle next. Is that a thing? I mean, you said especially for, I mean, so your your, your current startup or, or, or venture or platform, let's call it, is, is is a platform that provides resources to make men better, correct? Mm -hmm. And not just, I mean, father, husbands, uh, young young adults, young professionals, guys. I mean, so it, it's it's this group. What what made you, I mean, first of all, what gaps did you see? And, and what, you know, what compliments did you find that you can provide to, to really make make them better? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge topic, man. I think that, um, you know, it, it came out of my own personal experience of, of trying to figure out uh, what it meant to be a man and, and how to actually show up in our society. And I had fallen into that, that sort of archaic trap, and, you know, sort of bought into the old school, unhealthy version of what it meant to be a man, you know, like, you know, real men don't cry and real men figure their own shit out. And, you know, real guys, you know, they, they are oftentimes like the lone wolves, the alpha males. And so I had bought into that even in my singing career and found myself very alone, very isolated, 
not able to open up to my to to my male friends about what's going on in my life, open myself up to support and help and resources. And and when my life sort of did fall apart and I found myself in this rock bottom moment, after that, when I started connecting with other guys and and being courageous enough and brave enough to actually be vulnerable and say, this is the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. This is the stuff that was behind the mask, behind the facade of like the tough guy, the confident guy, the charismatic guy. Here's the real parts of me that I hadn't been showing. Uh, I was met with their real true self as well. And the parts of them that they hadn't been talking about, the failed relationships, the businesses that were falling apart, the you know lostness that they were experiencing in their lives. And I realized in that moment that we had been robbing ourselves of real friendship. We had been robbing ourselves of, of real brotherhood and masculine companionship because there's like this stupid uh, perspective and stigma and stereotype that we buy into that by being close male friends, that's somehow taboo. You know, and so we close guard ourselves and a lot of men have these competitive based relationships mm -hmm. where they don't tell each other things simply because they feel like on some unconscious level, they're competing against that guy. So everything's a competition. So if you want to talk about how much money you make, sure, I'll show up in that space. But if, if, if I'm going to talk about how I might be failing, I don't want to bring that forward because I'm competing with you and I need you to know how great things are actually going in my life. So I can't talk about those things. And yeah. so there's a barrier and a block that most men, especially in Western civilization are, are experiencing. And so we started to have these conversations in event spaces, in a very public forum with women at the events. And sometimes women would speak at the events and share their experience. And that public conversation started to break things open for guys where they started to admit some of the shortcomings um, of these stereotypes, of these stigmas, of you know the unhealthy versions of what it meant to be a man, and I don't want to confuse that with unhealthy versions of masculinity because ma masculinity inherently isn't toxic. Like there's a lot of talk about toxic masculinity, right. that's not that's not it. Masculinity isn't toxic. Our perceptions of what it means to be a man, right. some of those pieces are toxic, but that's not masculinity. So. Um, so we started to, you know, have events and then we started to have mastermind groups and men's groups because we had a lot of guys, you know, asking for, for a space where they could start to connect with other men in this very real and authentic and open way. And, you know, then we've created an online platform and a podcast and the website and, you know, just all of these resources. And we're, we're in the process of creating a, a course right now. And so out of that has spawned all of these, all of these pieces to be in service of, helping men be better fathers, husbands, and leaders. And, and so what to you, and I think that, that's, that's incredible, to be honest, because I think that's actually the side that's not really talked about. And you know what's funny is, is there's, I can't remember where I read this, but you, anybody watching this will experience this and probably have, but and you'll see what I mean in a second. But if you're ever at a party, okay, and you know, you're around very masculine you know, guys and they're all trying to like, the peacocking effect right they're like yeah you know they cheers man and like bumping fists and all that stuff it's funny to me that what, what happens when people go from being sober to drunk and how much of that is reduced like everybody all of a sudden is hugging each other love you man love you connor like yeah it's going well hey man so happy you know that you're my friend and you see there's so much so much of the sincere genuine you know love for one another regardless of of, of your sex like just come out 
you know, so, so that's really interesting to me. And, and as you point that out, it's like, because you made the point that you're, you're, you're you sort of let go of that mask that you're putting on for people, whether it be that you're just highlighting your success or you're highlighting your strength. It's almost in our DNA, right? It's an, it's a very animalistic behavior that, that especially in, in a society of hierarchies, you always want to be the alpha, right? I mean, in, in, in any case, whether it's corporate, whether it's personal, um, the one thing I wanted, wanted to ask you then is, is how, how do you define, like, what does a good man mean to you? How would you define it? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think in many ways, uh, a great man is, is somebody who, somebody who's not just living in a morally just way, but somebody who is, is courageous enough to work on himself mentally, physically, and emotionally. And somebody who's willing to to own the parts of himself that he would otherwise want to avoid and reject. And when we can do that, you know, there's a Jocko Willis, Jocko, Jocko Willix, who's a former Navy SEAL. He's got a book called Extreme Ownership. And it, in many ways, he's talking about one of the core tenets of masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. And the, one of the core tenets of masculinity is is the and and being a great man is the ability to own our own shortcomings, the ability to own when we've been in the wrong, when we've let ourselves or other people down, the ability to to, uh, own when maybe we're lost or we've lacked direction in our life, uh, or the ability to actually own in not a cocky or arrogant way, own our strengths and own our gifts in the world. And to be able to bring those out in such a way that they benefit other people. Right. That is then in, in highest service of, of who we are as men. And so, again, coming back to almost like the alchemist and what we were talking about, being a great man is less about core tenets and more about a way. It's mm-hmm. more about a way of being, of how we show up in the world. And, it, and, it's, and it's a path and it's a process. And it's less about trying to adhere to these rigid um, confines and, and stereotypes and archetypes of what we think it means to be a man in any given moment. Hmm. That's a very good way to put it. I know, um, you know, two, two things that come to mind too, of, of, of something similar, not, not just geared towards, I guess, masculinity, but, but Lewis House uh, recently wrote a book, The Mask of Masculinity in, in that sense. And, and I know he's starting to, to promote that as well, which is, it's interesting, especially during the, the time where we live uh, today. And I know, for example, there's another uh, group based in Toronto, but I think they're, they're all over Canada called Fuck Up Nights. And hmm. I recently got... Uh, you know, got to talk to them because what they do is events for the sole purpose of talking about fuck ups, whether, mm-hmm. you know, on the business side or on the personal side, but you essentially come together and, and, you know, someone gets up and talks about a major fuck up that they have, which is interesting to me because typically, especially when you look on social, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, these are highlight reels, right? You're seeing the best and, and, and the best. And sometimes people are genuine and they post videos of like, you know, bad, tough moments and challenges. But for the most part, it's like good pictures, nice filters, you know, in a suit or something. So uh, I think because of that, Simon Sinek talked about that. It leaves a lot, a lot of more people empty because you're always trying to 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 match, right? Oh, mm-hmm. well, Connor's in New York right now. I, I want to be there. You know, mm-hmm. or if, if you take a picture in this in this rooftop and you're having a nice time with your friends, and you know, and, and so it creates that emptiness, right? And uh, so, so I'm really glad that, that you're you're pursuing an initiative like this, man. Yeah, and I, I just want to say, like, so Lewis, Lewis is a, a friend of mine. I've had him on the podcast a few times, and um, and we actually like did an event with him in Vancouver, and and that book and that concept was spawned out of his own personal journey, you know, of of chasing fame and fortune 
and attaining a lot of them and realizing that those weren't those weren't his sense of self-worth. And the, the challenge is, is that a lot of guys are they they quantify and they and they qualify their sense of masculinity based on performance. So our masculinity is often very performance-based. How how are you performing as a man monetarily? How much money are you making? How are you performing as a man in the bedroom sexually? And so we start we start to uh, look at our masculinity as a performance-based qualitative and quantitative, right? And and so again, that makes it stationary when in fact, and, and, and the other thing that it does is that it doesn't make room for error, right? Then there's no room for failure because if you are strictly based on performance, like imagine imagine that in your relationship, imagine raising a child in a way of like, I will only give you love physically, <laughs> mentally and emotionally when you perform how I want you to. Terrible. But that's that's how we as men dictate, judge ourselves and other men. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of ways, when we can start to shift away from that and see masculinity as, as something that is a path rather than something that needs to be inherently uh, stationary and something that we need to be able to uh, quantitatively measure Right, yeah. because a lot of guys are always measuring their masculinity against one another. Right, I'm more manly than him because I make more money, because I drive a nicer car, because I have a bigger house, because my girlfriend or wife or fiance or whatever is is you know better looking or not better looking. There's this constant measuring that's that's going on, and when we can start to remove those pieces, we can start to embody a, a, a more healthier sense of masculinity. We can start to embody some of those core tenets mm. that that allow our lives to be much more rich and fulfilling that's amazing man and then honestly kudos again to you because i think this is not uh, as widely talked about as it should and, and i hope you know you keep driving that positive message I, I, I certainly will help support it um last thing i wanted to to, to leave off connor and, and for everyone watching by the way all the links will be at the bottom to the site to connor's linkedin to all his social so please make sure to connect with him he's an awesome dude one thing i always want to leave off on is is one piece of advice maybe one or two uh, piece of advice that you'd give to someone watching this? Ooh, the gen- uh, the generic advice. <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard. I had somebody. I, I had somebody ask me this. Uh, it's it so funny. A, a, one of my clients actually recently asked me this. He's like, "Can you just give me like a piece of advice about what I need to know in my life right now?" And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> uh, I, I love this question because it's open ended. I think. One of the things that I that I would say, one of the things that's been really powerful for me, powerful for myself, and powerful for people who really start to institute it, is is to understand what mindfulness truly is. We have a very watered down version of mindfulness in our life right now, and so many people, uh, so many people are struggling in their life. Because they they've taken down they've, they've they've taken on and bought into this version of mindfulness that's like super surface level. It's like oh, I just need to be like aware of stuff. I just need to be like mindful, and it's just like you can punch somebody in the face and be mindful that you just did that, right? Like yeah, I'm I'm mindfully punching you in the face, right? The the whole the whole challenge that most people face is that they they start to become mindful. And they start to become mindful of their thoughts and some of the thoughts that are going on. And they become present to them just for a brief second. 
and they become so overwhelmed by the things that are happening in their mind that it's easier to shut back off from that. And so they have these very brief glimpses into what mindfulness is, right? Because mindfulness isn't just about a process of being mindful of your thoughts. Mindfulness is a process of being mindful of your experience. And it takes you moving through the thoughts and into the experience to actually embody what mindfulness actually is. And so if you can start to cultivate a practice, whether it's through breathing, whether it's through your daily routines, of coming back to your experience of saying, what am I experiencing right now? And actually feel into your body, uh, you'll start to cultivate this connection to your intuitive mind. And Einstein said in this very famous quote, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. And we've created a culture that honors the servant and has forgotten about the gift. So we honor the rational mind and we put it up on a pedestal. And the problem with that, especially for a lot of guys and for a lot of you know more sort of like quote unquote masculine women is that they're stuck in their mind. They're stuck in constant ruminating thoughts and they can't get out. And they're stuck in anxieties. They're stuck in depression from the past and they don't know how to move through it. And they're stuck in their worries about what's gonna happen in their job or with their relationship or with the money. And, and they are missing out on the whole experience that's happening underneath the surface level of their thoughts. And when they can tap into their experience, they will have uh, this very profound moment of, of bringing themselves back into the present. Because here's, here's the trick, if I could just say one thing, is that your thoughts can live in any time your thoughts can live in the past, your thoughts can live in the present, they can live in the future. But your, your experience can inherently only be in the present moment. It can't be anywhere else. Yeah. Your, your experience can only be now. And when you start to bring yourself back into your experience, you bring yourself back into the present moment and clarity starts to arise naturally out of that because you bring yourself back into the present and away from the, the turmoil and the shit storm that is so often our thoughts of the future and the past. Yeah, that's a very good realization. Just to end that, I mean, it, it's crazy, and the fact that you know this is this is happening, but your thoughts can sway backwards, forwards, and you can really dig deep. And so, making sure not to also think like it's fluff, because I think that's what you pointed out in the beginning. Like, really understand the substance of mindfulness, take it seriously, and, and, and really understand how it can really help you, and use it as leverage to, to ground yourself, put yourself at peace. And, and deal with any sort of lingering problems that you have. Because at the end of the day, if you don't, nobody else really will. Mm -hmm. so, that, that's an awesome message. Connor, man, thank you very much, dude. This was this was fun. Thanks, brother. I appreciate you having me on the show. All right, my man. Catch you later. Thank you. Thanks.